Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Humans Vexus Manchester with me, Clint Boone. This series is sponsored by our friends at Safer Roads GM helping us to keep ourselves and each other safe on the road to Manchester. This week, I'm joined by founder member of legendary dance outfit 88 State, Mr Graham Massey. Graham describes growing up in Levenshume and the importance of community. Back then, you were just thrown out of the house. You were largely brought up by the people around you, which was a community, and I really appreciated that. And he talks about his musical influences. Uh, as Stevie Wonder entered that sort of... Uh, Inner Visions talking book kind of period, you know, that's yeah. that's kind of where I came in, you know, I thought those albums just sounded amazing, you know, for uh, on my young ears. Gives a great pleasure to welcome to Humans Excess Manchester a chap who's recognised mainly for his uh, creation just over 30 years ago of one of the most influential dance music acts of modern times. His name's Graham Massey and that dance act just one of the many beautiful things he's created is 8-8 State. Graham Massey, how are you brother? Yeah, I'm good, yeah. Nice to thanks, see you. Thanks for having us in. Hey, you're welcome, yeah. man. 
You're looking talking good. about my long life. We are going to be talking about your long life. We're going to be talking a lot about 828 State and some of the other amazing projects uh, that you've done over the years. And we'll be talking about your new music as well, which is incredible. Uh, but first of all, Graham, what I'd like to do with every guest on Newman's Excess Manchester is go right back to the beginning and talk about when and where you were born, Graham Massey. When and where? I was born in August 1960. Um, it's my birthday in two days. In fact. Is it? Yeah, I'll be uh, 59. Right, you having a party? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to have that when I'm 60. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was born uh, in Levenjume. Levenjume was where I was brought up, yeah. uh, which is now all kind of cool and trendy, isn't it, Levenjume? Yeah. But back in uh, back in the 60s, it was uh, largely sort of an Irish sort of sector of Manchester. Yeah. Uh, well, that's generalising, but that that was my kind of experience of it. Were you born at home or hospital? Um, I was born in a nursing home. I was the posh one right. of of my three other brothers. You know, I've got three brothers. Uh, there's four of us. And uh, for some reason, I was born in some private nursing home in Burnage. Burnage. <laughs> Burnage. Are you the eldest then, Graham? No, I'm number three of four. <laughs> you can't remember which. Yeah, uh, so I've got two old, two older ones and, yeah. and and a younger one by yeah who was uh, there was a big gap after me. Right. Okay. And, and then yeah, he's the the little one. And what do you remember about your childhood? Is it nice memories? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, growing up in Levin June back then, you were just thrown out of the house. You know, when uh, at daybreak and brought in when the street lamps came on. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, that was the the code to come back in. And even then, you didn't come back in. It was like. Largely outdoor, in a big gang of kids. Everyone had brothers. You know, it was a real nice sort of set of, uh, like a sort of, it was like the double deckers, really. It's a different, <laughs> a different world, I Because mean, I, I was, I grew up in Oldham, same, same age as you, pretty much, and yeah. grew up in Oldham. And it's like you say, just you just go and play out all day, and you travel on your bikes for miles, and yeah, have adventures, and and summer holidays. We're saying this when Steve Hodge came, and he was one of our early guests on the podcast. You'd go out when the summer holiday starts. It starts in June or whatever. I don't know. You just you'd go out on your bike, and you won't come back till September the third. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the day before it's the time to go back. To yeah, school. I mean, it was there, there's a great sense of uh, freedom and being unsupervised, really. You know, yeah. and uh, not to say my parents weren't parental, but um, you know, there were you were largely brought up by the people around you, which was a community, and I, I really appreciated that. Mm. And certainly, when bringing you know my own son up you know I wanted him to have a taste of that you know I was worried that that wouldn't happen for for this generation that's happening now yeah and uh took some, you know some concern over making sure that did happen you know so I think that gang thing that we had when we were kids people like me and you have found that in our adulthood by being in bands and being around musicians that's yeah. the same sort of thing in it we can't play out on streets anymore yeah because we'll get kidnapped we'll start a band <laughs> <laughs> that should keep us out of trouble yeah God but music music in that community was really important as well you know yeah. so you'd got you get a lot of uh, music trickling down from the older brothers certainly in my case my my brother went to uh, uni went to oxford uni actually it was a clever Clever chap, uh, which you know, no peer pressure there. But um, <laughs> but he started bringing the prog in once he started going to university, and uh, you know, did like things like Yes albums oh. and uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And did you get like it? That. Did you get it at the time or not? I, I was really interested in it, yeah. and you know, it, 
mainly from the album covers and things like that you know that that world of uh, fantasy album covers yeah. really played a part yeah. and i still i was i guess i was quite into art at school and doing sort of weird pictures and Amongst my um, peers, you know, everyone was going like, oh, you know, mass is a bit weird, you know, from an early age, you know, from about nine or something. I got still saying it about you now, Yeah, no, I kind of got labelled as as being, you know, slightly, um, you know, artistic or whatever, you know. So was that the first music that interested you, your brother's prog rock collection, or was there other stuff going on, like on the radio? Some of the first things I bought was uh, 10cc on on 7-inch. uh, like Rubber Bullets oh, yeah. was one of my first ones. And and uh, Kevin Godley actually used to park his car outside Eleven June Library and we used to mind it for him. <laughs> he won't remember, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> a great story. Can we mind your car, mister? It was a Jensen Interceptor. Oh, do you remember? Uh, they brilliant cars yeah. then, weren't they? So he was like a pop star amongst us. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we were supporting him. And then Stevie Wonder, Seven Inches, you know, the, as Stevie Wonder entered that sort of... Uh, Inner Visions talking book kind of period, you know, that's yeah. that's kind of where I came in, you know, I thought those albums just sounded amazing, you know, yeah. for uh, on my young ears, you know. Another thing that probably, I'm guessing you were mesmerised by this as much as I was and a million other kids, the TV shows in that era, like the mid to late 60s, early 70s, you had these amazing theme tunes, like one of my favourite pieces ever, Fireball XL5, the theme oh, yeah. tune, and I've, I've sort of ripped that many a time with the Inspirals and Clint Boone Experience songs, but um, Barry Gray, Barry Gray, Joe Ninety, yeah. Doctor Who. What yeah, the first time you heard the Doctor Who theme tune and saw that that sequence, that opening sequence, closing sequence. Yeah, did that, that hit you? That definitely hit me. Yeah, um, it was um, you know the visuals and the music together were uh, you know so futuristic. It was like acid, but we didn't know what acid was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and the other really important one for me was the ending titles of UFO, which oh, was which beautiful. was Barry Gray. Yeah. And actually, in years later, when they've been re-releasing Barry Gray, and in fact, Barry Gray was some, from somewhere like uh, Blackburn, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, um, he went to the RNCM and everything, didn't he? Did yeah. he? Yeah, when when it when it was just the College of Music in right. Manchester. Sorry, I digress. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the ending theme music to UFO was actually a, a Hoover commercial from 1963. So it makes it even more futuristic. Brilliant. It's this that. atonal kind of like yeah. falling music. And I remember things like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Me, my older brother had the soundtrack to that and that, that thing where the pillar appears, uh, Luxa Turner by, uh, I think it's Leggetti or something. Um, I remember that being the scariest music ever and, and, and just sort of returning to it all the time to see if I was still scared by it. And growing up in the 60s, you were some of my earliest memories were seeing rockets go off on the TV, you know. Yeah. Very little daytime TV back then. But if there was a rocket launch, you know, that you'd, you'd watch that or they'd bring out the big telly at school. So I was having this conversation the other day with somebody about how, how big the space race was, as we called it. And it was like... Were kids are glued to the telly now for X Factor and all that bollocks. Yeah, it, the space race was that was us. That was our X Factor one in, in a lot of ways in terms of the thing that brought the families together to watch at yeah. the night and and you know for night after night after night for weeks on end until they came back these fellows or whatever. Yeah, I mean how I remember the sixties is it was either, either the space race which yeah. was really hopeful and futuristic or it was the Vietnam War and that was just really worrying, yeah. you know. And there was this sense of the Cold War back then as well, which was really worrying, you know. So there was, a, you know, like, though we were, like, kind of free and sort of, like, you know, 
quite a happy bunch of people. They always had this sort of threatening kind of Cold War vibe in the background that yeah. was that was uh, just what you lived in. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there was this duality to the 60s that was like you know, part of it was just super hopeful. And uh, yeah, I'm really glad I lived through a bit of the 60s, you know, because, yeah, uh, yeah there was a tangible optimism about it. At what point did you start playing instruments? Probably when I was about... 14 or something um i, I was really we were talking about space i was really into astronomy me me and my best mate next door greg we both had uh matching reflector telescopes <laughs> <laughs> geek alert yeah in the in the back garden you know and uh i swapped mine for an electric guitar at, uh peter's swap shop in levenjoo uh around about when i was about 13 14 and that's when i started uh making noise experiments. Yeah. yeah. I say musical instruments because you are a multi-instrumentalist, aren't you? You played pretty much everything, don't you? Yeah, things? I'm a right dabbler. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I've, I've never um, stuck to one instrument. I've always thought of music in terms of sound. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not to be restricted by just that thing of learning an instrument. I think there was a little bit of rebellion going on at school when you got to choose an instrument. I really wanted to play the uh, oboe and they wouldn't let me do it for some reason. That built something up in me. I could never fit in with music at school, you know. That's ironic, isn't it? Because yeah. your, your most, most famous line of music of all time is pretty much an oboe sort of riff, in it? And the, uh, yeah. And the, uh, Actually, the yeah, state, I, got you know my, I got my revenge. <laughs> Fuck your ass, yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, even at school, we started, like, you know, sort of rebellious music activity in the lunch hours. We had this thing called the Wonkavator, which was like a load of oil cans shoved in a cupboard that we used to make sort of tribal music on, uh, you know, throughout the lunchtime. <laughs> and that's where I met uh, a guy called Colin Seddon, who we later introduced us to being in a band he had a band in burnage and uh we started to play um space rock wow. um in about 1977 yeah. uh, 1976 1977 i was going to say because we're, we're getting around the time yeah. punk rocker idea aren't we? so how did punk affect you i know you you got right you were into the prog already and yeah you you know subsequently made a lot of music it was art rock or whatever we we were going to gigs quite early like gigs were really cheap they were like 50p 75p if you went to the free trade hall or something like that and mm. i remember i was outside the palace theater going to see a group called supercharge when two of my friends came past and they were like oh we're off to the free trade i'll see the sex pistols and they had a little flyer about it and it was then like he said oh you should come with this it's like oh no i bought a ticket for like 75p you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know that that was a distinct moment where two of my friends actually were at that first thing and and you know so and then started collecting all the newspaper clippings about it and we were very aware of it being something that was happening in our town you know, um, it wasn't just a, a national thing. It was like quite a colloquial thing to us. Yeah. And going to early punk gigs, uh, you know, there's quite a mixture of tribes at a punk gig in Manchester. There's still the, all the long hair, REF greatcoat people yeah. at punk gigs, you know. It was amazing. I, I was there and it was a lot of guys in flares, you know, at punk gigs. Yeah. Guys in flares, like I said, long hair, that smell of... Uh, Musk oil, petunia oil, whatever they call yeah, it. Yeah, petunia oil. It was all yeah. that petunia. Yeah, just proper. The hippies was very much part of the punks, weren't they? they were yeah, in, definitely. Intrinsically linked, really. And also, these hippies were the ones that were letting us put these punk bands on in these gigs, weren't they? They were yeah. sympathetic to the cause, really. So, like, the first record I ever appeared on or put out was um, a thing by a group. We had a group called Danny and the Dressmakers. Yeah. And we were, you know, almost like a tongue-in-cheek punk group. It was just like we'd just get in the cellar and make it fill a C90 full of, you know, vapid noise. 
noise, you know. <laughs> it was just a noise band, and 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 it, you always played the instrument that you could play the least, you know. And, you know, quite often ended up on drums because yeah. I was useless at that, and that was important to play badly, you know. And at this point, you'd be like seventeen, eighteen. Yeah. You know. Did you have a job as well at this point? Were you a postman or something? Uh, no, I didn't have a job for years because, right. like, yeah, that was sort of my, uh, you know, Thatcher's Britain. I, it took me about ten years to get a job. <laughs> I, was, I was on the dole for about 10 years right and then yeah I became a postman and was it either was Sean Ryder's postman yeah you know? he, he was he was uh, probably at the main sorting office I, yeah right I okay was yeah. I knew he was a postman because he, he was Ucky's postman wasn't he yeah but I thought you were you were somebody's postman I, I was the Gallagher's postman that's the fella yeah. <laughs> in, in Burnage yeah that sounds like a line from okay. a great song I was the Gallagher's postman yeah I think there was some incident where I delivered the gyro to the wrong house and was in trouble for <laughs> did the Gallagher's remember that he did remember that when I first started uh, working with the Inspirals with you. Yeah, right. yeah, I did your f first session on um, Joe, wasn't it? Yeah, we'll and come to that in a minute. Yeah, that's a really yeah. nice chapter yeah. in the uh, yeah. nice little crossover, and it's pretty much where me and you first uh, met. Yeah. Before that, let's talk about Biting Tongues. You had a band, yeah. Biting Tongues. I think the word seminal is what you used to describe a band that was magnificent and they made beautiful music. They were quite um, inspiring on the Manchester music scene. It was before Manchester. Yeah. You've got the band back together in recent years, haven't you? What Biting Tongues, describe that to us. Yeah, well, Biting Tongues, um, we, we were all rehearsing in this cellar and we split into two groups after our first group. One became Crispy Ambulance, who were on Factory Records, yeah. infamous group. And the other one became Biting Tongues, also ended up on Factory Records. But originally we were put out by New Hormones Records, who did the Buzzcocks. Yeah. But what we were, were um, we got together to do a, a live soundtrack to a film at the Factory Club, which was the PSV Club in Hume. Yeah. And under the encouragement of Tony Wilson, who, who set up the factory to be like an Andy Warhol happening art scene kind yeah. of club you know that's what he had in his mind so um some of the members of the band were amateur filmmakers so that's how we got together we met at literally met on stage to do this but the level soundtrack. of musicianship was stunning for somebody like me at that yeah point. there was just a, there was just a sort of chemistry with that band where yeah. everyone had worked out some individuality already and you and the sum of the parts was just kind of uh, you couldn't really describe the music other than later on we got grouped in with groups like a certain ratio and um, um, twenty three skidoo in into post punk but no one called it post punk at the time they called it new wave I guess and everyone knew that everyone had cut up the rule book. Yeah. But most of all, it was just an attitude of do or die. You know, the Manchester music scene back then was very competitive. Uh, there was a thing called the Manchester Music Collective. Musicians Collective, yeah, I remember that, yeah. where d gigs were dished out on a monthly basis. We all met in a pub and, and uh, decided what the game plan was. Um, and it included bands like The Fall and Joy Division mm. and... Uh, things like Vibrant Thigh, Crispy Ambulance. And um, these gigs were dished out, and it was a matter of honour to be uh, the best band in the universe back then. You know, there was a sense of, like, it's not going to get out of Manchester. So the people you were um, competing against were right there, right yeah. then. You know, it was a really colloquial and small-minded kind of thing to it. You know, yeah. No one had a hope of transcending your colloquialism, really. So it was amazing when somebody like Joy Division did, you know. Yeah. What point did Biting Tongues sort of, or that part of your life, morph into the next chapter, which would be the 8 to 8 state thing? Did you did you see the thing happening 
you see the Hacienda thing starting to come alive and the the scene before A28, or did you already have A28 in position? Um, as with most bands, you know, a lot of bands um, just dissolve into other bands. You know, there's just a natural people just grow up in different ways. Our band uh, fell apart a few times. Um, one of the times was when half our band was a band called Yargo. Yargo were brilliant. Yeah, with yeah. Uh, Paddy Steer and Phil Kirby. Yeah. And uh, they got signed to London Records, and that's when Biting Tongues kind of fell apart a bit. Right. But we fell apart slowly and introduced drum machines and uh, synthesizers. And I, I was starting to do a sound engineering course at SSR, which was really new and embryonic over on Tarish Street in the northern quarter. And uh, so with the advent of computers um, being able to support writing music. MIDI. Yeah, it was a revelation to me because it, and then I could really get my ideas down with computers. Yeah. Whereas before, you used to have to get in a room, learn to play it, make sure everyone remembered it for the next time. Well, you'd have to find people to come and play the other parts, wouldn't you? But yeah. Because I, I was tinkering about it in my bedroom with uh, instruments and things I was making noise with from probably eight, 1981, 82. Yeah. And then through into 84. I think, I think probably 84 was when I first became aware of this this MIDI thing that was starting to happen. Yeah. And for bedroom musicians, in inverted commas, like us, it was just a revelation, wasn't it? Cause you could, yeah, you could freeze time absolutely. and think about things. You know, you didn't have to think totally in the moment all the time. You could freeze something and go like, oh, what if I try this? No, yeah. I could try that. You know, you could start putting colour palettes together. And uh, I found it totally liberating to be able to think about music in a slower way and uh, less spontaneous but having said that, you've got to understand that we were very versed in being spontaneous. We were very uh, literate in imagination. So when, when you bring all that stuff to computers, you end up with something as weird as 808 State was at the beginning. Yeah. It's just a real organic coming together of uh, everything, in it? Like the, the music was coming in from Chicago and Detroit. Yeah. The fact that we had this uh, huge nightclub that was available. It wasn't busy at that point, was it? Early no. On? And then the drugs were coming in. And your mindset, obviously, coming from that hippie prog background where anything goes and we can try. And the punk thing had liberated Yeah, it, well. it was about imagination. So all the people I knew in Manchester who were involved in house music were coming more from the... There was these record shops like Spinning in Manchester. There was a traditionalism in dance music. I mean, we used to play... Some of the first gigs we used to play with 808 State were like soul weekenders. And, you know, there was a very biased audience there that weren't open to new things. It was yeah. all about the tradition and it was all about, um, you know, DJs being very specific about where the sources of that music came from. So to go in there with new music, it was repelled by yeah. by that scene. You and, know? and it was a new music that sounded a bit wonkier than anything we'd had before. Yeah, it almost made us want to do it more wonky, This yeah. this, this being surrounded by traditionalists. The way that the Inspirals got linked to me, you guys, was we had a record deal with a company called Playtime Records in Manchester. That came to an end. We decided, well, we were advised by Martin Price, who was part of 828 State yeah. at the time. Martin Price had started a label called Creed. He had Eastern Block Records. And he said, look, set your own label up. And we were like, we don't know what to do. He said, I'll, I'll help you with it. So he set up our distribution and everything. That's where Cow Records was born. <laughs> One of the first things we did was to get in the studio with you yeah. to record Joe, the single Joe. And it was the first time, to me, in my mind, that a collaboration was happening between a, a guitar band and a dance outfit. You produced it. You put that drum machine sort of vibe to it. Yeah. Um, and I've got really nice memories of that in Square One in Bury. 
you at the desk and uh, us doing our best to play this garage music. Martin Price stood next to us saying, right, no, do that again, a bit tighter, do that, do, change that. But I remember him standing there, like, you know, helping us and making this really cool dance-inspired uh, or dance. Yeah, he, he was very much a person that was obsessed by music. He was like, had an encyclopedic knowledge of music. Yeah. And uh, every time we were in the studio, he, he always had about, you know, four bags of records with him. And he was always, like, keen to sort of put stuff on and go, like, more like this, more, more like that. that. You know, it's yeah. kind of a... It was almost like bursting out of him, the amount of yeah. uh, direction he wanted to put into music. The passion and enthusiasm. And, and, um, but often that was kind of sort of channeled through... Uh, my one finger keyboard playing, you know, <laughs> it, it was all squeezed in in there, kind of thing. And then, of course, we uh, Gerald was in the group early on as yeah. well, you know. Guy called and, Gerald, and yeah. he was he'd already got his game together, you know. He'd already got his, uh, you know, his techniques and things like that. And yeah. he, he, you know, he wasn't the easiest of collaborators, you know, kind of thing, because he was like he was certain about what he was doing, kind of thing, you yeah. know. So, so again, it was a kind of community that it was like a community project. Really. Absolutely, yeah. and you know, going back to Martin Price, another thing that I want to say about him, and it's, it's relevant to what else was happening in the city at the time. Before that, nineteen eighty-eight, eighty-nine sort of era, blokes, young lads, didn't dance on their own. Yeah. If you went out to a club or a bar or a pub, you'd dance either with your girlfriend or, or some girls, or you'd dance with your mates. Yeah. But blokes didn't dance on their own as I saw it until that era that's when it was alright to go to the Hacienda on your own being a corner just raving or standing with some other guys raving but Martin Price I remember him being in the studio just dancing on his own all the time just going for it and not, not worried about us looking like what are you fucking doing yeah. you know what I mean but it's like it became alright for blokes to dance on their own in that, yeah. that well it was era. interesting that those when we started out you know a lot of uh, the people who were involved uh, were very much part of that you know bit of lino in the middle of Market Street Break dancing thing, you yeah. know, they'd all come from electro and hip hop, and that was an established dance culture. In fact, like uh, years later, I think it was Jason Orange was was part of what they they had a dance crew that yeah. that was very credible street dance crew. Yeah, I can't remember the name, but um, but they all knew each other from yeah. that. And uh, later on, uh, take that would come to eight oh eight at the GMAX and everything because of the. There was this common um, street culture of electro that, yeah. that a lot of it had sprang from. You yeah, know? Yeah. So dancing was prevalent in that. But I know the nightclub scene in Manchester, when you used to go to like, I don't know if you ever went to Rotters. Oh, yeah. yeah where yeah. you had to wear a tie. I and preferred Rafters in the basement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, a lot of nightclubs in Manchester, there was a dress code, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah. And, and, you know, certainly a sort of code of... Uh, a sexual code, yeah, as yeah. it were, you know. And the DJ, the DJs would be introducing every song and back announcing every song, and yeah, it's a different world, wasn't it? Uh, uh, it's definitely a different world. And the hacienda started to break that down, though we always saw the hacienda as being a bit sort of face and ID as well. You know, it was slightly pretentious for years. You know, something that didn't fit with a lot of people. Yeah, I know, like the younger lads in eight oh eight would never go there because it had this sort of like, you know, London-centric kind of view of the world. You know, that broke down in 88 and it always, always broke down on a Friday with that particular night that they had on a Friday because that was much more related to uh, nightclubs like Legends in Manchester and, you know, some of the stuff that was coming out of uh, Moss Side who are, you know, it's much more of a black night 
the Friday night, and yeah. that that's the, the night that kind of broke the acid house stuff, and then the other nights got polluted by it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you got memories of recording that first album, the new build, the first eight to eight album? Oh yeah, we did that in a weekend. Yeah, it was a real. Um, you know, studio time was so rare, expensive, and you really had to have your game together. You know, yeah. we, I remember getting uh, a reel of tape out of the skips at the BBC. We used to do a program called Meltdown. We used to go, right. and they were like, have you got a tape? You know, yeah. we were like, like, oh, you can have this. It's in the bin kind of thing. And it was a newsreel tape with an edit every four inches. It had an edit, you know, yeah. because they'd been using it for news footage. So when I took that to get mastered, the mastering engineer just fell on the floor laughing, going like, what have you done with this? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's just shredded already, you know. And, uh, you know, we, we just begged, stealed and borrowed time. You know, I used to uh, be on that course at SSR and be the caretaker. So I got to look after it overnight, mm. which, of course, was like free studio time. You know, Brilliant. used to sneak everyone in yeah. in the middle of the night. And we only ever did uh, nighttime sessions. And then Gerald went to work at McDonald's in, in the morning. That's when the yeah. session was over. Wow, you know? I remember that. Yeah. And, what, and, that, and that album was, it was groundbreaking, but you probably didn't realise that at the time, did you? But, I think the, the defining thing about that album is its density, right? And it and its complex sort of cross rhythms. It, it sounds like a version, or you know, it's kind of it's very polyrhythmic and yeah. very polytonal. There's a lot. Of, it'd be interesting to go back and listen to what kind of cassettes we were listening to back then, because it wasn't just house music we were listening to. You know, yeah. there was a lot of other things that informed that jazz, music. You've you always know. had jazz, like biting tongues. There was a lot of jazz. Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, it, if you're interested in music, you'll end up in them places, won't you? You know, you'll end up on Miles Davis, you I, know, in Miles Davis land, and you know, because it's it, it's just gonna come at you. I, I've spent forty years resisting jazz and saying it's not for me and I don't get it. I've just yeah. recently embraced it in the last couple of years, really embraced right. it. Mainly because I've got a decent sound system and as a musician I appreciate what's going on in there and I appreciate the fact that a lot of these performances are live performances straight to stereo or even mono in some cases. Yeah. So, jazz is such a clumsy word in a way. You know, It has so many much baggage for different people. You know, yeah. It's like... We need a better word it needs for it. Tagging, you know? it? Yeah. So we eventually come round to Pacific State, which was suddenly you had a hit record. You were doing Top of the Pops and all that business. Yeah. And uh, how was that point of your life? Did you long to be a pop star as a kid? Like what no, I, I did? never thought, I never really <laughs> thought of that would happen, you know. Just the music we were making wasn't... Yeah, you didn't know, yeah. It would never hit the mainstream. You were never thinking of Top of the Pops, I, I get No, we were always thinking John Peel. Right. Like John Peel is a place where we felt comfortable and... Yeah. Uh, somebody actually went to the John Peel archives and pulled out everything that he ever played of mine on John Peel. And there's an amazing selection of different stuff really? that, that he ever that he played, you know. And stuff after 808 as well? Uh, before and after, after yeah. Because yeah, yeah. you did loads after, we'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what was always the ambition, really. It's just, just get it on Peel, yeah. you know, because then you would, the, the whole country was listening, you know. Yeah. And he was and, so powerful back then. It was just, yeah. it's hard to explain today how powerful he was in terms of the influence he had on that, that generation of people. Yeah, imagine if he wasn't there, there would be a whole uh, set of music that just didn't get anywhere. We wouldn't be here doing this, would we? No. <laughs> so, you know, in order for the mainstream to collapse, it took something like rave. You yeah. know, the, the rave movement was so powerful in terms of a cultural event and nobody knew, no one was an expert on rave music. And through that gap in the fence, we just ran across the playing field 
with all this nonsense music that we had, you know. And uh, none of our hits, and we had, you know, numerous appearances on Top of the Pops, numerous entries into the British charts with the weirdest of music, you know. (laughs) And I think that will always be my proudest achievement, is, is to take the the most ambitious kind of music into the pop charts you know i think it changed um, a lot of people's perspectives on music and widened things and and uh, that's what i've always wanted to do and in the process you you became a big cornerstone in what became known as uh, edm electronic dance music yeah you're one of the the main contributors to that as is craft work who we'll talk about in a minute because you did a gig with them recently didn't you yeah let me just go back to you mentioned anthony wilson uh, i'm assuming you always had a decent relationship with him yeah i mean it was never a close relationship but you know we'd run into each other all the time um you know summer biting tongues we rehearsed in didsbury and um howard um from biting tongues he he was making films and uh tony wanted to make a video company he had a like a video editing suite in his basement and right. formed this company called factory icon yeah. to do vhs videos and we ended up sort of copying tapes for him and and getting involved in that we made a film um called fever house uh in the early 80s and uh, Tony bankrolled that once we'd r- ran out of money on it. We got some Northwest Arts money to make this black and white film, and yeah. and he got uh, he was like, oh, that'll that'll be great to launch my video thing. So yeah. that's how we first got involved with Factory, and we did a soundtrack album called Fever House, which is a very strange record. I, I remember the film. I've got some of the v- v- VHS tapes. I think the uh, Perverted by Language by the Fall was on there. Yeah, it's Fact interesting icon. to go back over the icon stuff because it had art films, you know, concerts of New Order, concerts of uh, Fall promo videos. You know, it's quite yeah. a collection, eclectic collection of. If you wanted to know what the eight, the mid eighties were about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The Inspiral Carpets gig at the Hacienda, the first one we ever did, that was filmed by Icon, and it, yeah. it never came out, and I just often wonder where the films are because it's a full yeah. professional shoot. The, there's, we did a, a, a gig with Nico and John Cooper Clark at the Library Theatre, and they filmed that, and I, I wish to God I could find that. Right. Talk about Anthony Wilson. You must have felt his spirit more than ever in recent months because you've been working in the actual... On the new album, you've been recording yeah. it in the actual room... Do they call it not an edit suite? A the, transmission the transmission suite, suite it's yeah. called. Yeah, it's where all the TV, there's a wall of 80 TVs. It's where they used to sort of uh, channel all the programs through, you know. Yeah, and so and the, the, you're channeling things from like you know, Yorkshire TV. It's like the ITV network used to come through it. Nerve centre. But yeah. the, the Granada TV building in Manchester, it's still stood there until recently. Yeah. But a lot of the equipment was still in there, and it's fascinating. When you see, if you check out the video for Tokyo Tokyo, that's a yeah. 8 to 8 single, that's the actual room. Where I'm sure on many occasions Tony Wilson would have sat in that room and done his yeah when you when you see him doing it like you know so it goes yeah and he's got a bank of TVs behind and him. all those keyboards in that video were they all in the room in case you needed them for tracks or were they there for props they were all in the, the room because my wife insisted that I take them out of the house that's why <laughs> they were all in the room it's, it's, it's an amazing scene though isn't it and uh, so we've got the first new album in 17 years coming out soon it's uh, Transmission Suite yeah. What was the inspiration or what was your mindset when you were doing it? Was it was it nostalgia? Was it the future? Was it Manchester? What were you how were you guided through that recording process? The reason I was in the transmission suite is that I was given a project by MIF to do the opening of MIF two thousand seventeen, was it? 
in Piccadilly Gardens with this huge run, yellow runway thing. It was a Jeremy Deller project yeah. called What is the City But the People? And I was in musical director for that. So I had to have a place to set up and it needed need to be a room big enough to work with a number of people. Uh, so that's when I set up in Granada. And then at the end of that project, um, you know, we, we just kept the studio on and started working on an album. And the reason we've not done one in so many years is that we've not had a base for years, you know. We've continued sort of working as 808 State in terms of live stuff and we've yeah. had our sort of bumpy ups and downs in, in, in the personnel and the way it was all clicking along. And uh, it's not that we stopped making music or doing gigs, it's just that we needed a home. And very much like a, a band needs the nerve centre, it yeah. needs uh, a centralising and that incredible that nine it, the, to five kind of thing about yeah. it you know what i mean oh yeah absolutely but you can walk in and just press play and not without to build it all i remember going into one of your old places in uh behind juicy the, house juicy it? house it was yeah. yeah and just seeing that like, you had keyboards like nailed to the wall literally yeah so you, it was just uh like a mad professor's laboratory yeah it? And it is a laboratory and that's that's the way we work it's not like you sit down with an acoustic guitar or you know you really have to have a lot uh you know a huge musical palette yeah. With, with with that um well it's at least the way i think you know it's kind of have everything available and like you say it's not just electronic music with 808 state we throw all kinds of instruments at it and uh, all kinds of textures and bringing in as with this one we brought in a lot of music other musicians into it you know when, once you get momentum as a musician i think that's incredibly important to have that momentum and that that's why we've been so lucky in manchester has manchester music has a momentum you know, there's a lot of people egging each other on. There's a lot of uh, community in, in music in Manchester where you can go out and see something and then you're inspired to, to um, you know, respond to it. It's know? always been like that, hasn't it? Yeah, no, that's like. what I was saying about the early days with Biting Tongues, you know, is this idea of, like, response to music around you yeah. um, that I think sometimes gets lost in the modern world, you know, this, uh, this idea that, you know... Um, um, yeah, community basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah very yeah. supportive. Yeah. I'm not going to talk in depth too much about your other projects, but my favourite one, Sisters of Transistors. Oh yeah, <laughs> one, one of my, my favourites too. It's brilliant. Yeah. So it's basically four women yeah. playing uh, retro, vintage electric organs. Yeah, Graham on drums. Yeah, do check it out. It's just it's on YouTube. It's all Sisters of Transistors. Great name, great yeah. band, yeah. great concept. I might yeah. steal that from you sometime. Yeah. Let's talk about Manchester. It's beautiful city of ours. Yeah, you were born eleven June's like what? two or three miles outside the city centre, so you're very much a Mancunian. What do you love about the place? I think it's really changing at the moment, you know, and it's making me reflect on the fact that, you know, Manchester was a fluid kind of... Uh, it's always had this student population that gives it a youthful buzz and uh, uh, makes the, you know, the nightlife um, particularly fluid. It's all There's ideas there. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, it's not, it's not a place of, it's not a static place. You know, like you only have to go out and live, you know, say you lived in Spain or in in Italy and it's all like, there's a, there's a sort of, a, you know, age groups live really peacefully by each side. You know, it's like Manchester, <laughs> there's always a little battle between the youth in Manchester yeah. and, and the other generations, you know, and I, I like to see that still happening. You know, I like to feel like uh, they're pushing still. 
and uh, you know sometimes worry that they're not pushing enough these days you know but um it's like the energy of yeah. uh, like it's like a dog pulling at a lead in it that's yeah that's a, a yeah something's being tugged along uh but occasionally you'll, you'll come across across these little pools of people going like you know it's dead like yeah don't understand that good yeah. you know <laughs> are you uh, are you aware of any anything music wise that's happening in the city at the moment it's very exciting that's I can't really put it into words, but yeah, I'm just sort of like, I mean, I've you've got 20-year-olds in the house, haven't you? You know what I mean? The, yeah. I just like the fact that they're coming in at four in the morning and, and something's going on. I, I mean, it's good that I don't know about it, you know what I mean? It wouldn't be right if I knew about it. You're going it. to be your dad? Yeah. <laughs> Music, that is. No, but we have a, you know, a healthy kind of... Uh, you know, exchange about music. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like, you, as a kid these days, you've got the entire history timeline of music to dip into, and they do. And it's accessible and it's touching yeah. a button. This idea of tra time traveling yeah. on a, a musical timeline is is, uh, you know, we sort of had a version of it when we when we were twenty or whatever, you know, but it wasn't nearly as filled in as it is, and it's not nearly as um, exploratory as uh, you know. If I was to ask you, Graham, who are your favourite humans of Manchester? Give us a few names. Ooh, it's 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 a toughie that. Uh, other than me mates, you know, we mentioned Paddy Steer before. I think he's uh, as one of the uh, people who's a lifer in music, you know, who, who goes through a journey in music uh, that is very singular. I mean, we, we've done, like, huge big bands together uh, uh, where we were carting around a, like a 14-piece, like, mini orchestra going around France. And, yeah. uh, you know, all the headaches that go with that. He, he's, like, gradually slimmed it down to a duo and then he's slimmed it down to a solo act now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen his solo act recently, no, where, yeah. he, where he goes on stage as a sort of robot. Uh, he's got like you know this Egyptian costume and a, and a sort of alien head, and uh, it's he's playing uh, instruments with his feet and his arms and everything. It, it's just totally amazing. I can what, see why it's, it's like you, you're sort of connected at the hip. I mean, you've got you've both got that inner and, and uncontrollable desire to make music, and you can see that yeah. when, when you read up on what you've done over the years, what you're doing now, it's like. Every time I talk to you, you've got a new project that you're working on. It's like, yeah, uh, what did you do in Stockport the other week? What was that called that you were doing? Uh, that was called Beach Surgeon, or and there was another one called Neo Tantric, that which was is yeah. with uh, Sean Canty <laughs> from Dem Dykstair and Andy Botel. Yeah, but Paddy Steer, check him out. An amazing bass player. And Yago, the band that we talked about earlier, yeah. Y A R G O. They should have been as big as Simple Red. They're nothing yeah. like Simple Red, but that sort of skill and talent. And like, like Votel's a really good example of somebody that's put so much into music in Manchester. He's kind of like uh, what he's done with that label Finders Keepers in terms of like eking out really valuable and lost uh, nuggets of uh, not just Manchester music, but let, let's just talk about Manchester music there. Like stuff from... Uh, the 70s that I wouldn't know about, shining yeah. a light on things like... I love the Manchester District Music Archive. Do you, do you know this website? It's incredible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I well, the thing I love about that is that the timeline doesn't just stick to the polarised Manchester version of Manchester. And I really rail against that Manchester thing yeah. a lot of the time. I know it's been good to me and it's been good to you, yeah, yeah. but uh, it's uh, it's part of a, a much bigger marathon race that, that we shouldn't ignore uh, that goes back centuries, really. Yeah. 
that makes this um, city a very important music city. You know, you go back to things like the you know the Halley Orchestra. What a bunch of rebels they were back in the day. You know what I yeah. mean? In terms of playing, you know, all the music that wouldn't get played in London. You know, all the spiky new ideas got played up here. You know, first, you know, and it was like an orchestra that would just champion the outsider stuff. You know, and it's I, I love all that. You know, it's it? yeah. and the fact that punk, you know, without Manchester, I think punk might not have been as uh, monumental as it was in the UK because we were one of the first cities that you could watch the Sex Pistols in. Yeah, totally. You know, back to Granada, you know, their first gig being there. You know, it's funny under, you know, working in that room in Granada because under my feet it was like, I think it's called Studio Six or something. It's the, ta- the small studio where the Beatles first did their first TV stuff. You know, Joy Division did their first tv stuff yeah. uh so many firsts in this little um you know within cubic meters of where i was working yeah and uh just feel that history you know and yeah. then just that wider square mile of where, where we are now in fact you know castlefield and um you know that that road with the free trade all on it and all these venues i mean when i go around manchester and think i can look at most venues in manchester and go rocked it Rocked it, rocked it, rocked it. You know, I'm boring. We'll be driving through the city centre. I'm walking with my wife and kids. I'm going. I've DJed there. I've played there. Yeah, yeah. I've DJed there. I've DJed. But that that is somehow quite amazing. That it's beautiful, isn't it? That um, you know, it's it's only it's not that big. If I was to ask you, Graham, before you go to describe Manchester in three words, what would they be? It's. a capital eccentric, you know. I mean, it lives outside capital thinking, which allows um, new thinking, yeah. which is gives invention. And uh, you know, Manchester's just this centre of invention when you go back through history. You know, I know um, Tony used to bang on about it, you know, and slightly exaggerate things, but you don't have to exaggerate you know so much innovation came from this city in terms of broadcasting in terms of uh, musical output and yeah. new ideas you know computing you know a lot of scientific stuff born in this city you oh, know yeah. uh, i mean when when you go abroad and start you know beating your chest about manchester you know somebody has to shut me up about it you know what <laughs> i mean i'm incredibly proud to be from I'm manchester like yeah. mancunian yeah. boar graham masty thank you for being a human of excess manchester thank you for having us there you go that was graham masty next week i'm joined by iconic drummer and member of factory band the deruti column mr bruce mitchell don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us. Feel free to leave us a review as well. We love getting your feedback. Thanks to our friends at Safer Roads GM once again for sponsoring this series and thank you for listening. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.